Well, hi everyone. It's great to have you join us on Grace and Peace Online at our online campus today. Uh, my name is James Wheeler. I'm the worship pastor here. And uh, we're just so glad that you've joined us. I pray that uh, the worship and the messages and these services are encouraging to you, enriching to you, and helping you grow in the Lord. And ultimately, we pray that you will be with us in person, but we understand sometimes that you can't. I'm going to be uh, bringing the message today in our Thinking Like a Christian series. This is part four, and the title of my message is Knowing the Jesus of the End. And I hope I piqued your curiosity with that title. I'm going to unpack that more later in the message so you understand what that means. But first, I do just want to say um, we're sincerely thankful uh, for all the giving that goes on, the regular uh, tithes and the offerings that, that folks are, are bringing into the storehouse and really uh, being a blessing to the Church of Grace and Peace. So we thank you for your generosity. I want to encourage you to, to take a step of faith and grow in the grace of giving if you have not done that yet. And I just want to pray a blessing over all those gifts before I begin teaching uh, the message today. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus thank you that you are good and that every good and perfect gift comes from you. And as we sow the gifts, the good gifts that you give us back into the kingdom, you said that we'll be taken care of. It's plain and simple. Uh, I pray that you bless those that are giving. I pray that you make sure that every seed sown uh, goes directly to the work of the kingdom to expand the kingdom, to preach the gospel. Uh, through this vision here, the Church of Grace and Peace, and uh, globally in all the extensions and expressions and ways that we sow uh, throughout the earth uh, today. And so we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a quick reminder, uh, the sermon notes, the fill-in-the-blank notes, and uh, a complete basic transcription of my sermon here will be online, and you can access those at graceandpeace.org. Uh, and you can do that at the Next Steps page, or if you're already on Grace and Peace um, um, online, then it should all be right there for you. So I want you to know that. I think sometimes it's easy to maybe mishear or misunderstand a sermon, but for me, I write out pretty much everything very carefully the way I feel like it needs to be delivered. So even if I uh, mess up and missay something, you can go back and look at that and read exactly what the heart is behind the message. So thinking like a Christian, let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 22 and over in verse 37. Jesus said this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This seems super, super simple, but to think like a Christian, we, we have to actually think. It says it right here. We must engage the mind. We must be thinking Christians. And so part of using our mind uh, means applying some critical thinking principles. And uh, they're available for you to, to find uh, on the internet. They're available to look up in books and resources. But I'll talk about that in a second. But critical thinking will help us take what we know from God's Word and apply it effectively in the public square when speaking on behalf of the gospel and in the name of Jesus. It'll also keep us from misrepresenting the gospel and will keep us from falling into error when standing for the issues that we're passionate about. It's super important. And I said all that to say basically this. Thinking Christians embrace and practice critical thinking. 
It's part of loving the Lord your God with your mind. So a definition simple of critical thinking is the objective analysis and evaluation of an issue in order to form a judgment. So here's some examples. I'm going to go through these really quick. I'm not going to explain or give an example of what each one of those means, but it'll just be kind of a starter list to help us uh, uncover some things that can be uh, either biases in our thinking or fallacies in our thinking. And these will serve us well. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rapid fire through these. So a bias we can fall prey to is reactance. And that says this. It's the bias that says you'd rather do the opposite of what someone's trying to make you do. Uh, there's in-group bias. And that's unfairly favoring those who belong to your group. Uh, there's something called the halo effect. That's when how much you like someone or how attractive they are influences your other judgments about them. There's the fundamental attribution error, and that says you judge others on their character, but yourself on your particular situation. There's the framing effect. This says you allow yourself to be unduly influenced by context and delivery. Confirmation bias says you favor things that confirm your existing beliefs. And then along with that, there's one called the belief bias. It says that if a conclusion, a conclusion supports your existing beliefs, you'll rationalize anything that supports it. Okay, so those are some of the biases. And then some fallacy thinking. Uh, this is just a, a short list. There's, there's some others. The straw man fallacy is misrepresenting someone's argument to make it easier to attack. False calls fallacy is presuming that a real or perceived relationship between things means that one is the cause of the other. Appeal to emotion fallacy. It's manipulating an emotional response in place of a valid or compelling argument. And then there's the fallacy fallacy. And that's presuming that because a claim has been poorly argued or a fallacy was used in presenting it, that the argument or idea is completely wrong. Throwing the baby out with the bathwater there. Ad hominem, uh, ad hominem fallacy is when you attack your opponent's character or personal traits in an attempt to undermine their argument. The special pleading fallacy is when you move the goalpost to create exceptions when a claim is shown to be false. There's ambiguity fallacy. That's using double meanings or ambiguities of language to mislead or misrepresent the truth. And then the, finally, last one I'll share is the bandwagon fallacy. That's appealing to popularity or the fact that many people do something as an attempt to validate that idea. I think you can probably understand as I shared some of those how easy it is if you look at the media and if you hear your friends talking how, how we fall victim to those things. We fall prey to those things. We're not using our critical thinking. We're not loving the Lord God with our mind by engaging our minds. So I want you to understand this, that a rightly divided word of truth, the Bible, is a thinking Christian's objective basis to form a judgment. To help us see in our blind spots, becoming aware of biases and fallacies can serve as guardrails so we don't fall victim, as Pastor Ralph called it, to theological food poisoning or misinterpreting and misrepresenting the gospel in the kingdom of God. Always remember this, a scripture without a context is a pretext for error. Just because two passages use similar words 
it doesn't mean they're connected or have the same meaning. Just because a word in the original language, Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, has several options for us to look at, its meaning and usage, it doesn't mean we cherry pick and choose the ones that we think work to support a doctrine that really isn't supported throughout Scripture and other contexts. We can't use Scripture out of context to form our analysis. We can't misunderstand a passage and give it a meaning that works with our theology. It takes study and it takes a willingness for us to change our thinking, to use critical thinking to get this right. We don't build our doctrine on big name ministries. We build our doctrine on Christ alone. The Lord spoke this to my heart recently and I want to share it with you. He said this, if you haven't felt challenged in your beliefs, if you haven't searched your heart and weighed what you believe against God's word, especially when an insider truth is shared that goes against your upbringing or preconceived notions, you're headed for trouble. Because an unexamined heart is an unrepentant heart. I want to say that again. An unexamined heart really is an unrepentant heart. So the Bible in many places confirms the need for critical thinking. We're just going to look at one of them. There's others. Over in Proverbs chapter 18 verse 17 says the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. The NIV says it this way in a lawsuit the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross examines does some critical thinking. See, we have to actually hear fully all sides and perspectives. We have to weigh the evidence. We have to look for clues and listen to the Lord to make sure we are rightly dividing the word of truth in every issue. See, it isn't just God's word we are to rightly divide or discern. It's every word. Every issue we are to study to show ourselves approved. If we're going to use critical thinking, we need to apply it to all sides and every aspect of an issue we're faced with. And how many of you can agree with me that there's some issues right now that we're facing? We heard in an earlier sermon uh, that from Pastor Rolf, I believe he quoted someone as saying, the Apostles' Creed is something we should die for. It's that important. But don't get trapped into thinking that just because someone's willing to die for a cause, it's truth. Far too many are dying on hills that Jesus didn't die on. We aren't taking up our cross. We're not being crucified with Christ and letting him live through us when we do that. We're dying on hills where we haven't done due diligence to think clearly and objectively through. And I feel like that's too bad. See, terrorists died on 9-11, but they died in vain. They died for a false idea, a false ideology. They died for an evil cause. But the heroes that ran into the, to the Twin Towers to save people, they died for a just cause. Two deaths, one right, one wrong. So we could say critical thinking falls into the category of wisdom. And God's word is clear how important wisdom should be to us. Thinking Christians apply wisdom to critical thinking. See, it's not just, okay, do all these critical thinking uh, techniques, but we need to apply wisdom to critical thinking. Proverbs 4 and verse 7, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and in all you're getting, 
get understanding. Proverbs 8.22. The Lord possessed me, that's wisdom, at the beginning of his way before his works of old. I'm going to mention something about that in a second. But let's go to Proverbs 3.18 to undergird this a little further. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding he established the heavens. By his knowledge the depths were broken up and clouds dropped the dew. We're not going to go there, but Hebrews talks about faith, how by faith creation was framed, and by faith all these things happened. But before words of faith were spoken, as we saw here in Proverbs, and there's other places to confirm it, wisdom guided what should be spoken, so that faith could release what God already saw. That's a powerful truth. Wisdom comes first, so we must seek first. Get this. Wisdom dictates what faith creates. Wisdom dictates what faith creates. Wisdom is the driving force of discernment that shows us where to speak words of faith. According to Hebrews 11.1, the unseen evidence, the substance of things hoped for. That's why we can't just use carnal wisdom or the wisdom of man. We can't stop with critical thinking. We can't stop with human wisdom. We must go further. Let's look at what Romans 8, 6 says about that. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about this. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. So let's grasp this next concept here. Thinking Christians walk in the wisdom of God, which supersedes the wisdom of man. I'll repeat it. Thinking Christians walk in the wisdom of God, which supersedes the wisdom of man. James 3 and 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Ephesians 1, 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. When our wisdom is in him, in Christ, and in him alone, then our understanding is enlightened. Without him, it is not enlightened. It is only with Christ Jesus that the contradictory and conflicting issues that surround us can be reconciled because Jesus is the Jesus of the end. And that's the title of my message today and I want to carve the rest of this time out to really help us understand what that looks like. Thinking Christians have a revelation of the Jesus of the end. Thinking Christians have a revelation of the Jesus of the end. In a world where the public square is held prison by opposing arguments, God's rightly divided truth will never be held captive by the tyranny 
of the or. Rather, God's rightly divided truth will champion the right understanding and application of God's perfect and in Jesus as it should come to bear in every situation. Don't make mistake, uh, don't mistake what I'm saying here. Don't misinterpret. I want to really help us understand this. I'm going to develop the idea further, but before you roll up your windows and say, I see a problem with that, I want to explain more. This is not saying Jesus and everything. This is not saying Jesus and my false gods, Jesus and my own will. This isn't adding things to Jesus and saying they're all copacetic together. This is Jesus as the and. He has to be the and in the middle. See, two selfish people with Jesus at the center, if they move towards Jesus at the center, if they move towards Jesus at the end, they're not going to have compromise. And we think that somehow that's the beautiful answer. It's not compromise. They will find sacrifice. Jesus in the middle is sacrificial. When we find him, we'll find reconciliation. We'll find redemption. We'll find wholeness as long as Jesus remains the end. So get that. I'm going to look at a rather lengthy passage here that just demonstrates how beautiful this, this is, how, how beautiful this concept is, and how maybe we can learn to live in this way. It's from John chapter 8, starting in verse 2. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the eldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up, and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now there's a lot here. But just, I just want to look at the beauty of how Jesus handled this with both mercy and truth. And we could say mercy and grace. Similar ideas, a little bit different. See, it was merciful for Jesus to allow the Pharisees to self-examine the condition of their hearts without lecturing them or berating them in the moment. See, he gave them a choice. Even though they came to trap him and trip him up, he spoke and set them free with the, listen, the merciful truth. It wasn't devoid of truth, but it had mercy Hear this, church. The Lord takes no interest in entertaining our accusations against one another. In reality, those are accusations against him, for we are his body. It was merciful for Jesus to even speak to this woman against the custom of the day. 
it was forbidden. It was truth for him to tell her she indeed was sinful, and it was merciful for him to give her the freedom to choose her future. Something else that's really interesting to note, he did not pursue this conflict. He didn't initiate it. But when it came, he dispensed the wisdom of God full of mercy and truth right in the arena where it was brought to him. Think about that. Within the courts of the temple, God's place of worship and prayer. See, church, we're his body today. He indwells us. I want to ask you, how are we doing knowing and reflecting this Jesus of the end? Is this how we're handling things? Is this how we're representing the kingdom of God? A lot worth reflecting on there, but I'm going to keep plowing down here towards the end. 2 Corinthians 1 and 20 shows us this. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. His word is truth, even when it seems contradictory. And through the Holy Spirit, and through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, we agree with his word in Christ Jesus. See, we can't agree with his word apart from Christ Jesus. A lot of people are trying to do that. What Christ Jesus has said and what he has done interprets the word, and it shows us how to apply the word of God. Let me explain. Jesus is the and for our yes and amen. Jesus is where conflicting and even contradicting realities are resolved. It's like this. I have enemies, so do you, and I love them. I lose my life in Christ Jesus, and I find it. I walk through dark valleys, and I fear no evil. I'm loved and accepted, and I'm chastised and corrected by Jesus, the one who loves me. So when we say amen, we agree with the atoning work of Jesus to us and through us towards others. And because of that, thinking Christians live like the Jesus of the end by walking in the wisdom of grace and truth. Thinking Christians live like the Jesus of the end by walking in the wisdom of grace and truth. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now let me just parse out the nuance here between grace and mercy before I go on, because they really are similar. Mercy and grace, they're closely related. While the terms have similar meanings, grace and mercy are not exactly the same. Mercy has to do with kindness and compassion. It's often spoken of in the context of God's not punishing us as our sins deserve. Grace includes kindness and compassion, but also carries the idea of bestowing a gift or favor. It may help to view mercy as a subset of grace. Uh, in Scripture, mercy is often equated with a deliverance from judgment. And grace is always ex uh, the extending of a blessing to the unworthy, to people we think are unworthy. Just think about that. So in terms of Jesus being the and for us, we should be full of grace, mercy, and truth as thinking Christians.
Proverbs 3, 3, let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, and so find favor and high esteem. Check this out, in the sight of God and man. See, mercy or grace and mercy and truth, they're revelations of the same light source. And when we see them properly, they bring about what seems the impossible, favor with both God and man. Proverbs 16, 6, in mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity, and by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Jesus is the merciful truth that we need, and Jesus is the truthful mercy that we need. And Jesus is the wisdom we need to know the difference and when to speak mercy or grace and when to speak truth. 1 Corinthians 1.30 But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God. See, thinking like a Christian, it isn't bandwagon groupthink. It's a prayerful discernment and declaration of the best revelation of both mercy and truth even when it speaks out against collective thought in the public square or in our peer groups or in our churches. So here's some examples I am, I am pretty passionate about. You can probably come up with some others. See, character, integrity, and policy matter in our national leaders. We can have both and we should pursue both with the Jesus of the end. God can use unrighteous people for his glory and... We aren't held prison to endorse nor embrace their unrighteous beliefs nor their unrighteous actions. He will use them, but we don't have to promote them and praise them. There's a difference. He works all things together for our good. We can express empathy, concern, compassion. We can move in actionable, loving ways towards all people who are oppressed by racism and discrimination. And at the same time, we can articulately bring attention to the anti-biblical tenets of the Black Lives Matter platform. It's not either or, it's Jesus as the and. We can walk in love towards our brothers and sisters by being as publicly health conscious as possible and we can speak out respectfully. We can take necessary action against government overreach and the removal of our constitutional rights. We can support divergent views and affirm freedom of choice in areas where one-size-fits-all solutions aren't the best scenario. It's okay. God has a plan through the Jesus of the end. Church, we can discuss issues and still love and have fellowship with each other despite divergent viewpoints. Because two can walk together when the common agreement is the Jesus of the end doesn't take anything but that. If we can agree on that, we're walking together. We can be fully aware that our pagan-based calendar often finds its roots in the celebration of darkness, and it does, and we can still act as agents of reconciliation and shine as lights against the darkness in spite of it. Is not Jesus, the God who does the impossible, who has done the impossible and will do the impossible. You see, God shows us a path 
to fight every battle in a way that demonstrates he wins. It'll never point to our savvy, our debate skills in the public square, but should always mystify and stupefy the darkened understanding of the world. Think about this. Keep in mind from biblical history, those of you that know the word of God well, worship brought down a walled city called Jericho, not an army. Gideon won the battle by sending away more qualified soldiers than he enlisted. Nehemiah built a wall during captivity in the presence of his enemies. Church, we don't need to be caught between a rock and a hard place. The Jesus of the and is our rock in every hard place, if we allow him to be. How did he do that? And how can he still do that for us and through us? The answer is this. The path to living out like the Jesus of the end is the cross, humility, hoping in redemption, bringing reconciliation, walking in the fullness of grace and mercy and truth. Jesus was and is the mediator between God and man. He was and is the perfect and. Let's look at 1 Timothy 2.5 there, and I'm going to finish up here quick. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. If we want to see Jesus as the and glorified in all of our oars, we need to live and act like he did and he does. We need to use critical thinking and wisdom to get in the right objective frame of mind to let Jesus be the Jesus of the end. I'm suggesting we need to live as intermediaries. Intermediary. A person who acts as a link between people in order to try to bring about an agreement or reconciliation. In other words, a mediator. An intermediator doesn't validate compromise. They don't ignore eternal truth. But they shine the light on the darkened understanding of the two extremes and bring it together as the Jesus of the end. So with all that in mind, understanding we need to be thinking Christians, we need to use critical thinking, we need to make wisdom a priority. And we need to embrace Jesus of the end. I just have a few simple next steps for you today. I would say, number one, I want to challenge you to go be an and to somebody. Go be Jesus of the end. Let him be the and in all your challenging situations. Love someone you don't like. Listen to someone maybe you disagree with. Secondly, I want to encourage you strongly to get some study tools, some Bible study tools to help you rightly divide the Word of God. BibleHub.com is one online free source that I use a lot to prepare my sermons. There are others, but I would just encourage you, use some critical thinking, get in there, and really learn how to discern how to apply God's Word to every issue. And then finally, and probably most importantly, next step, invite Jesus into your life. If you haven't done that, I want to encourage you strongly just to surrender. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be perfect. He paid the price for you. And all you have to do is sincerely ask him to come in and be Lord of your life. And right after this, Pastor Jim is going to come on and help lead you in a prayer that will walk you through that decision. And if you make that decision, we're excited about um, going on that journey with you together. So thank you, everyone, for listening to this message. I pray that it goes down deep into your hearts and it bears some fruit in your lives. And we're excited to see you back here again next time. God bless.